following podcast is sponsored by Robots vs. Dinosaurs. Robots vs. Dinosaurs recommends Daryl Lee Australian Licorice for all your candy cravings. Robots vs. Dinosaurs is a proud member of the Apocalypse Podcast Network. Check out Apocalypse Podcast Network for more great podcasts. Disclaimer, this podcast is about to spoil several movies from 6 to 20 years old. Lou, read off the list. Today, Robots vs. Dinosaurs will be spoiling for you, the listener, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Honey, I shrunk the kids. Honey, I blew up the kid. Honey, I blew up the audience. Grease, white fat, blue lagoon, return to blue lagoon. Avengers, Endgame, Weird Science, Transformers 1986, Star Trek, The Next Generation, Captain America, Super Mario Brothers 2, and AI, Artificial Intelligence. Weasel, Dork, Buttface, Scuzzbucket. Hello and welcome to Robots vs. Dinosaurs, the podcast where we watch a movie every week and then try to determine which one is cooler, robots or dinosaurs. I'm your host, Louis G, and with me as always is my co-host, a new co-host every week. This week, I have a returning co-host and a new co-host, and I'm going to be talking to 80s film and pop culture enthusiast Rochelle Woodson, along with director and producer Jason Karubia. Listeners, you may remember Jason from our My Science Project episode, which we also released as a hashtag watch along episode if you want to check that out. So that way you can watch the movie with us and get our full commentary for the entire running time. But let's say hello to my two wonderful guests today. Rochelle, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being on. Hello, Jason. Welcome back to the show. Hi. I'm I'm back. <laughs> I couldn't stay he's, away. <laughs> he's back. Uh, back. Thanks. Thank you so much for having me back on the show. I'm super excited about talking about this film. Absolutely. Well, after you uh, made me sit through my science project <laughs> and were gracious enough to sit through it with me, um, <laughs> no, I really, I really enjoyed it. I'm glad that you uh, brought that on that movie on to the podcast because it had a great dinosaur, God Funking Zilla, right and it brought back a lot of memories because I, that's a movie I had only seen on VHS as a kid and had never revisited until you brought it to the table. And actually the same can be said about the movie we're talking about today. So Rochelle, can you tell us what movie we're gonna be discussing on this episode of Robots versus Dinosaurs? Yeah, we're gonna be discussing Disney's Flight of the Navigator from 1986. That is right. The 1986 live action Disney film, Flight of the Navigator. Who stars in this movie? A young man named Joey Kramer. I do know Mm -hmm. that. And Sarah Jessica Parker. Yes, a young Sarah Jessica Parker, young yes. Carrie Bradshaw. Yes, yep, we, all her young permed glory. <laughs> Sarah Jessica Parker has the first time you see her. She has she has purple hair, a big perm, and an excessive amount of eyeliner on, and it's just yeah. very characteristic of the eighties. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's a prequel. It's Sex and the City of Miami. Basically, right, Sex yeah. and the City of Fort Lauderdale. Now. <laughs> Fort Lauderdale, right. <laughs> But no, thank you for uh, for mentioning this film in our previous podcast. It dropped the seed in my my mind. Like, wow, we should really cover this next. The hop, skip, and a jump from from what we previously talked about. But there's other, there's other people in the film. I mean, uh, also Paul Rubens. You know, he actually goes by the name Paul Mall in the film. You know, Pee Wee Herman has, is his most commonly known as. I mean, you wouldn't know. In fact, a lot of people I've, I've talked to is like, wait, what? 
Pee Wee's in this film, like in they don't realize he's in there. Same. That's I'm one of those people. <laughs> I was this many years old when I realized Pee Wee Herman. Basically, was... <laughs> well, I always like I was. I actually was mentioning earlier. I always knew it. Obviously, sounded like a Pee Wee Herman voice. I just assumed that they were capitalizing on the popularity of Pee Wee Herman and Pee Wee's Playhouse at the time. So they wanted the robot to adopt a similar voice. I didn't know it was the actual actor, Paul Rubens, that was voicing the character. And then in the credits, it says Paul Mall, and we didn't have mm-hmm. internet back then to do any investigating. Yeah, and you kind of t- can tell. I mean, when he comes out and says a couple of his laughs in the film, it's definitely the Pee Wee laugh. Oh, for sure. Yes. But in, in, in terms of, of the actors in pulling weight in the film, though, he does a remarkable performance of changing his register and producing mm-hmm. a robotic uh, robotic tone that is not off-putting, um, but it's definitely a stark difference to when, when he changes. And we'll talk about that probably in a little bit. But yes, he. I, my experience was very similar to yours where I, when I started watching the movie, I was listening to the voice of the robot and I kept thinking that voice sounds familiar, but I can't really place it. And then when he uh, downloads the information from David's brain and his personality changes, he, he started laughing. And I thought, my first thought was, wow, this guy's doing a very good uh, Pee Wee Herman impression. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then I immediately looked it up to see who it was. And I was like, oh, it is Paul Rubens. Okay. But that just, that really goes to it, to Paul Rubens credit, how much, he, I don't, didn't recognize him for the first half of, of the performance at all. And it kind of makes sense. If he's doing something completely different than his persona, um, Pee Wee Herman, he kind of probably wouldn't want to be associated with the film in that way, particularly because it's not a live performance, you know? I don't you know if they... Disney Disney also wants to sort of distance themselves from Paul Rubens? Well, that's actually a really interesting point. Disney didn't produce this film ultimately it was made independently and then disney bought the rights for distribution so it is technically disney owned film but it was actually another production company called pso producers sales organization that actually you know funded the film independently then produced it and distributed it through walt disney pictures there's another group actually called norwegian viking uh, a norwegian company called viking films that did some of the filming as well um, in norway so it's actually, you know, got so many other hands in it until, you know, it was actually sold to Disney, who now owns the rights to it. But it, they, yeah, Disney, they originally pitched, the film was originally pitched to Disney and they turned it down and then picked it up after. But, Interesting. But, but yeah, the, the film uh, produced in 1986 by Randall Kleiser. I think I'm pronouncing that right. That's <laughs> Randall, the director, right? Randall that's the director, Kleiser. I'm sorry. D- director Randall Kleiser. Also his claim to fame are like the film, Greece, uh, the Blue Lagoon, oh. and Return to the Blue Lagoon. Wait, and is he, that why there's a clip from Greece in this movie? Yes, that is a that is <laughs> okay. a nice Easter egg. So when in 1977, uh, when they're traveling um, in their station wagon, you can hear a couple of songs play uh, on the radio, and one of the songs is is "You're the One That I Want" yep. um, from Greece. And yeah, it's Rochelle. A, yeah, oh, and go then ahead, sorry. go ahead. Yeah, he did a couple of other movies as well. He did Big Top Pee Wee. He produced for uh, for Disney. He produced White Fang and mm. Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. And then he did later on the Epcot attraction, Honey, I Shrunk the Audience, which is no longer there, which makes me very, very sad. But it, it was a fantastic you know, blend of of cinema and audience participation. 
Yeah, that was a fun, uh, what, what would now be called 4D experience. Right. Uh, I remember I remember that one. I remember there's a part where it, they have something under your chair that makes it feel like rats or something are, are brushing up against your leg. Yeah, they, they, um, they, have, they multiply the rats and they're, yeah, they, they spray air underneath your chairs to make it look mm-hmm. feel like rats or tails are touching your legs. It's very, very disturbing, but fun. Um, Rochelle. But- yes. I have a question. Yeah. Because you use the term robot to refer to Paul Rubens' character in this movie, mm-hmm. Max. I want to ask you your definition of a robot. So, Rochelle, what is a robot? Oh, boy. I mean, I guess I just used it in this case in a very general sense, just meaning something that isn't organic or from nature, something made of metal parts that moves on its own and speaks. <laughs> but I, I mean, I suppose in this movie, it's a little bit of a misnomer because now you guys will be more experts in this. I'm sure we'll have some opinions, but I don't know if this would be considered more of a droid type of a thing. I don't know if big difference between there's robots as far as our Rosie Roomba that vacuums our house. That's a robot of some type, but then there's other ones that have a lot more personality as much as Rosie does, but okay. more than her. I know that's, that's a like, distinction I was going to ask you for. I was going to ask you, does a robot, for you to for you to want to call it a robot, does it need to have a personality? But you're saying, and I agree with this, that it's both. There, whether mm-hmm. if it's automated and it's like a factory machine or something like a Roomba, that is mm-hmm. definitely a robot. But also, if it's something like uh, Rosie from the Jetsons, right. that's also a robot. Yeah. Jason, yeah, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, we androids being specific robots that I guess, I'm not sure the definition, but but uh, are remnant of human. You know, I think that have some type of human characteristics in some way. I guess George Lucas owns that term droid. So <laughs> when whenever someone says droid, they, they have to pay George Lucas money. But yeah, robots can be just mindless automatons but they can also at the same time take on personality and life I, so max max is an interesting case study in this i think because max is arguably the entire ship but he also is sort of like a mech in a way where where a human operator is flying the ship and operating all of the movement of it and in those times he's only the floating articulated eye the big like camera eye that we see zooming around everywhere right so, uh, so what we, do you consider max to be so you're getting on to an interesting point how max which stands for trimaxian drone ship uh mm-hmm. which which david mm-hmm. cleverly calls him max for short he, he's he's a drone so he's not he's automated he doesn't have necessarily personality you know he 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 is uh he he blurs the line and this is a question that we have is max the ship itself or is max the robot within the ship piloting the ship are they two and connected are they interconnected are they one so we we don't quite know but we do see max traveling around inside the ship at one point he does have to i guess re recalculate or uh, reprogram his his processors so he can perform you know the trip to back in time so he, he actually pilots the ship looking or somehow uh, change, changing things within the ship as well so there's some mm-hmm. type of mechanical thing that he does as well he's not just linked to the ship so it's a very interesting question whether right. he's completely associated with the ship or not which which also leads us to you know the question is is, is max 
you know, sentient in some way? Is he, is he a life form or is he a completely autonomous or a drone? But going back to the beginning of this film, we have to really, I guess, talk about how we got here, talk about what the heck yeah. actually Max is. So, uh, yeah. so we have this I, film built we'll in that. Yeah, for this film from the 1986, where you know it's it's a story that what is it? Is it a is it a robot movie? Is it is it an alien movie or is it a time travel movie? Because in essence, it it is all three. Mm-hmm. At any particular moment, it can be. And as one as in similar sta- fashion of the 1980s, it was always designed to be accessible for kids. Yes. Starting in the late 70s with Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and then 1982 with E.T., the United States and kids were just obsessed with aliens. You know, we had TV shows like Alpha on the Air, where it was very, very ingrained into our pop culture that you know, aliens are cool. But at the same time, though, kids also wanted to you know, participate with space wars and things that are, are out of this world. Um, and then, of course, everyone loves robots. So they, the, uh, the blending of the three come together with also time travel, which happened a year prior with the film Back to the Future. And, of course, the film that we covered, uh, My Science time Project. Time Busters, right. Time Busters. <laughs> uh, My Science Project. So the three come together in this film to create a very, very accessible, you know, non-threatening, very entertaining film, Fly the Navigator. As we learn through David and encounter those three things, robots, aliens, and time travels, he realizes that, that he doesn't belong in any of these scenarios and he has to go back to what he knows and what he actually cares about. But that's, that's, that's going back to a lesson at the end of the story. So we have, we have the character now that David goes, the, the plot of the story is basically David goes home one night and then he, his mom tells him he has to go pick up his brother from a, a neighbor's house. It's after dark. He has to go get him. Um, of course, kids are allowed to roam through the woods at night, travel over you know, railroad tracks. And David uh, sees his brother at one point. His brother scares him, and then his brother runs away. David ultimately falls into a ravine and hits his head. Gets knocked, knocked unconscious. Wakes up. And things are just a little different when he gets back to his house. Suddenly he realizes, oh, wait, this is not my mom who answers the door. Oh, wait, the house doesn't look like the way my parents have decorated it. The, the new owners of the house, of course, think he's, uh, uh, he's insane, something's wrong. They call the police. And at this, this point here where he's at the police office, he's realized that he's back in time. He's traveled back in time, particularly. So it is, like you said, it's definitely like forward in time, forward in time. Yeah. Like you said, it's a, it's also, it's a time travel movie, which I forgot about completely because it's been so long since I've seen it. I forgot about the time jump being the real like journey for David, but yeah, you're right. It's definitely a time travel movie, an alien movie and a robot movie. One of, one of the aliens happens to also be a robot or the other way around. But one other one thing I'd, we're, we're going to go we're going to talk about the beginning of the movie for sure. But I just want to drop this in because we're going to talk about this later. There is another robot in this movie that we are going to discuss. Oh, we Ralph. have to. Yeah. And I think it's great that the movie gives us both of these because when we get there, it's going to give us a lot of fuel to talk about the difference between them and how Max is much more of a character and why that is. So I like to I always like to think about and unpack the opening shot of a movie because it tell, usually tells us a lot about either the protagonist or it sets up the story in a, in a really great way. And this movie starts with a really fun fake out. And it's one of three fake outs that I noticed. And you might, I hope you guys, if you noticed any more than those three, let me know. We see this, this shape flying through the air across the skyline of Fort Lauderdale. And it looks very much like the visual language of, of a UFO. It's this disc-shaped thing 
sort of gloriously, effortlessly spinning through the air with the clouds in the background. And it's revealed to be a Frisbee yes. <laughs> uh, when a dog catches it, a very, very good dog. And we're treated to, this movie opens real strong because we are treated with a dog Frisbee montage. Yeah, it's a Frisbee competition. Fr- mm-hmm. Dog catching, a Frisbee catching competition um, with dogs. And it's a clever, very clever match on action to make you think that it is a flying saucer uh, that they do. It echoes kind of Stanley Kubrick and the, the bone being thrown up in the air, turning into a spaceship. You know, it's got a, it's got a sam- similar feel to it. And so the director, yeah, he, he knew, Randall knew what he was doing here. Um, yeah. Introducing us into these subtle themes of what we're going to be seeing. And, and kudos to the dog. Yes. Like, <laughs> it, we, every good sci-fi story, particularly ones with tri- time travel, need a good dog. And Bruiser, yes. Bruiser's the name of the dog. He's, he's, uh, he's wonderful. He, and, um, Bruiser, Bruiser with his heterochromia. Um, yeah. One of his eyes is a different color and, and yeah. everything. Yeah, Rochelle, how did you feel about the July 4th, 1978 <laughs> South Florida Frisbee Dog Championship and, and how it was depicted in this film? I mean, I grew up in Florida. I didn't live in Fort Lauderdale. I lived in a much uh, smaller town, a little bit north of there. But I thought it was one of the main things I loved about this movie on a whole is just I felt it was very representative of a 12-year-old's youth and Mm. the things that you do for fun, like, you know, how things were just, this is going to make me sound older, but just a little different back then. Like, you were riding your bikes all over or running through the woods unattended even after dark and to go grab your brother from down in the neighborhood. And um, there's even a line when his parents tell, tell them to go get him. He says, mom, he's eight years old. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) I love the line where he's walking through the woods. He's got bruiser with him. He says, see, all you have to be for girls to like you is to take charge, be a guy that that's what girls want. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's the same the conversation where he says to the dog, want to know my real problem? Right. I don't know what I want out of life anymore. That's, that's right. a young that's, dog. You that's heavy for a 12. <laughs> what did you say, Rochelle? I, I cut you he says, as a young dog yourself, you may find that hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy when you watch movies from the late 70s and 80s as like a time capsule of, of how parents parented. But I will say, these are great parents. I love these parents. I love I this family in general. Yeah, it, you were spot on the money there. The dad is, is, is so concerned and he talks to David like he's an adult. You know, he's not trying mm-hmm. to sugarcoat anything. He's trying to be honest and sincere. Some, some good age appropriate advice for, you know, a young girl that he has a crush on, you know, just, yep. well, by the way, it's, it's kind of creepy. He's, he's spying on her through his telescope. At well, one it was point. aimed at water and she's hanging out on a boat. It wasn't going into a oh, bedroom or anything okay. like that. <laughs> but good it is, call. it is, good it is kind of interesting. You know, David's coming into, to, you know, puberty and, and noticing girls. And this is a, a theme that actually comes back a little later on when he's talking to Sarah Jessica Parker's character. She has that line, you know, you're kind of cute. Wow. Has anyone ever told you that? And he goes, uh, my, mom. my mom. But I don't think she can. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think she can. <laughs> oh, he grows up so much in this movie. Yeah, he does. He's, he's, he's he, worked, he quite he's literally does, out. even though he doesn't also. Even though he doesn't. Even though yeah. he doesn't. He <laughs> should be uh, 20 years old, but no, he's, he's not. He's still 12. To do. Yeah. Right. And they have that line, mm-hmm. when was it? His brother is seeing him in the hospital and they, they talk about that it might be some type of thyroid condition. That's why he hasn't <laughs> aged and stuff. <laughs> it's, it's very interesting. Like a Jack situation. 
Right. Or no, I guess it's the opposite of that, right? Benjamin Button syndrome. I don't know. Benjamin Button. There it is. So, <laughs> actually, this right after the uh, the the frisbee dog championship. Which okay, here's one thought that I had while I was watching it. Before I knew that they were showing us a dog cat of a frisbee dog championship tournament, I was like, my reaction to this was, man, they're filming a movie. They, they could do as many takes as it gets for each dog to catch the Frisbee. Why are they showing us the dogs that failed to catch the Frisbees? <laughs> like, those poor dogs, they don't need to be... Look, you know. everyone loves an on-screen dog. They're the exactly. Best yeah. yeah, whether uh, they're catching or missing the Frisbee, they're still it, good good dogs. Uh, yeah. In, in the all winners in, in some way. That's right. They're good boys. That's right. Um, so yeah, we get the... Second fake out very shortly after this scene where a blimp is floating through the air. And mm-hmm. it's it's like you said, Jason, the, the director knows what you came to the movie to see. He knows he, it's confidence that they've marketed this movie, they've advertised it right. So you're coming in knowing I'm going to see UFOs, I'm going to see aliens in this movie. When's the movie going to show it to me? So it fakes you out a couple of times, which I think is really fun. The way, especially the way that it does it. Yeah, it's it's subtle. There's a there's a couple of moments that we can see that the the director is trying to establish place and time as well that I don't think necessarily work, but they're nice to know. So we mentioned Greece in the car is one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, he has the music, uh, you know, from Stevie Nicks. There's a song I think that plays as well on the radio. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- there's subtle '70s stylized. It's not over the top they mentioned the bg's concert that david goes to as well you know there's there's hints throughout the film that that david's from the 70s the end of the 70s but at the yeah, same they time talk about twisted sister at one point and well that and, yeah, yeah at the same time the, the movie is a time travel movie that points out all the oddities and celebrates the 80s and mm-hmm. it's it's wonderful how it does it uh, twisted sisters is one of the things that it does but even the 78 78- you know, portion of the movie. It's the 70s, but it's two years from 1980. So it's not terribly different right. in, you know, uh, the style, the style, like the milieu of, uh, you know, what South Florida in late 70s, early 80s is. Right. So yes, it's mm. eight years later when he comes back. But other than a lot of the pop culture things and like political, you know, Jimmy Carter's no longer president and there's now music videos and there's five different kinds of Coke and all these things. <laughs> yeah. uh, otherwise, like the fashions don't look really different other than somebody like Sarah Jessica Parker, who's obviously Has very trendy hair. and, you know. Yeah, and so the, this, I, I like how in Back to the Future, you know, they reference the 80s and says, hey, I'll, I just like a Pepsi free. Like, look, if you want a Pepsi, you're going to have to pay for it. Right. <laughs> but in this movie, he says, uh, I'd, I'd like a Big Mac fries and Coke, they, unless they don't have that anymore or something along those lines. And, and she says, well, that depends. Do you want Diet Coke, Cherry Coke, New uh, Coke, Classic Coke. Coke, or Caffeine-Free Coke? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's not like he came, when he came out of, you know, the ravine, like in Back to the Future, where they're like, oh, why are you wearing a life preserver? Where it was just so obvious he was not wearing the fashions of the time. I mean, he was yeah, wearing the that's exact same jeans, the exact same shirt. Nobody was looking at him funny. Right. You know? There's subtle hints that make him uncomfortable, you know, that this isn't where he wants to be. You know, nothing seems familiar. And he says, like, you know, one line that, you know, he misses his friends and family. Oh, wait, they're all, all 21 years old right now. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's sad to be a kid, you know, and, and not have people to really identify with. 
Well, you know, it's really interesting about the clothes thing. Jason, we were talking about this in the My Science Project episode. I said that if if Fisher Stevens's character wearing what he was wearing when he first appeared on screen suddenly appeared in 2020, nobody would look twice at him. He would He would just look like the people of today who just wear a little bit of every decade from the past. And I think that's, that's, that's kind of like a thing that I just thought of where, where it's, it'd be weird. It'd be kind of hard to make a time travel movie today where like somebody from the past wakes up in the present or gets transported to the present. And we don't just immediately think like, Oh, it's a cosplayer or, or it's just this person's outfit today. You know, the surprise and the most jarring thing I noticed in the film when I was watching it about closed is that fact that they were all wearing pants in in Florida. I'm like, it's so hot down there. (laughs) And the other thing, which I also thought was very unusual is that when they go to the David's house, you know, the initial house that they live in was two stories and there's, there's virtually no houses in Florida. Not that many, but in, you know, some of the, Older Fort Lauderdale houses, yeah. especially on the water, those people have money. They got so, money. Yeah. Yeah. You'll see that, <laughs> that a little sense. more. But a lot of white, a lot of stucco. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. all very representative. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> the third fake out that we get that I noticed, and if there were more, I'm not sure, I might have missed them. But the, um, so the first was the frisbee flying through the air. The second was a blimp that we see later on. And the third one was when David is going through the woods to go find Jeff. Mm-hmm. And he sort of rounds a corner and looks up. And there's just the curvature of something that when he walks a little further, it's revealed to be a water tower. Yeah. Mm. Shortly after this is when he trips and falls into the ravine, and that's when the time jump happens. And the way that they do it is really clever. The way they that he just it seems like he's just knocked out. He wakes up a little bit. That fall actually looked like it hurt. <laughs> that was really <laughs> either really good stunt work or I don't know what, but it just it, I, I I was like ooch when I saw that kid fall and take that hit. Um, but then he wakes up. So I totally believe that he could be knocked out and passed out for just a little while, just a few hours. And he comes to, and he goes back to what is his house. And it's not his house. And this old lady answers. And I love that. <laughs> I love the test about like, who's the president, Jimmy Carter. <laughs> and also this old couple is kind of, a. I mean, they're almost barely, they're barely in the movie. But it's just interesting that they're immediately concerned about him. Mm-hmm. They're they're nice. Um, imme- they're, immediately they're offering kind. help. They reminded yeah. me of like my Mima and Peepa that lived down in because my my Peepa actually had his own room, like his study where he would sit and read and listen to music. Did he do it in a smoking jacket as he well? He did not. Oh. But that's okay. <laughs> there was amazing Art Deco like stylization going just, on in the entire I house. I think if my Mima mm. people had opened the door to a young man in a similar distress, they would have reacted this very much the same way. Yeah. yeah. One cool like thing about their house that I noticed was that on their, they were also in, a, uh, well, it was the same house, but <laughs> I, I just said their house, but it was really David's house. Yeah. I, I guess at that point, their house. But they put a fish tank halfway up the stairs because at one point he like pauses there. He's, he's kind of trapped between them on the staircase. And I noticed a fish tank with like an air aerator mm-hmm. bubbling in it behind them. David, he goes to the police station, ends up at the hospital and Jeff comes in. And this is one of the freakiest moments of the movie. Like seeing his parents aged up 
about eight years. Yeah, yeah it so really hit me as much I, as when he sees the silhouette of Jeff in the doorway. It still it starts when the 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 jarringness of how the change in time starts when the nicest two police officers you'll ever meet, the police detective and the police officer. You know, they sit him down in the police station. They're talking to him about it when they take him back to what's on record as being his parents' address, who reported a mm. missing persons report eight years prior. They ask them, you know, have, did you did you report your son missing eight years ago? And he sees his parents and his parents, of course, they, they burst out in emotional tears. And, and uh, he can see that his mom's hair is very different. You know, his dad's got gray. They did a really good job aging them, but not not too much crazy aging mm-hmm. them. They definitely looked more haggard, not just the fact that it had been eight years, but that they've obviously been through a lot, you know, worrying about their son that's missing and not presumed dead. And it's 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 probably the worst feeling imaginable losing a child. And I, I can't imagine having a, a child come back like that and then being so unusual yeah. of, of how old they are. And again, having the most, you know, grounded parents that are available for David is is really really welcoming with this film like you can't you can't throw those characters away it really helps kids as you're watching it feel safe and comforted if you know that your parents are there for you so I just coping as best they can yeah yeah coping as best they can it's um, interesting that that the disappearance of the of one of their kids didn't tear this family apart it grew them it made them grow closer yeah, and and as a as a story of a family unit, you know, they go to the hospital and the mom's like, you know, I'm going to stay here with David tonight. You guys go home and get some sleep. And then the next scene that we see, you know, as you're pointing out, David's brother's there. And, you know, he, my favorite he, character in this movie, Jeff is my favorite character in this whole movie. <laughs> yeah, just seeing that that shot of the silhouette of Jeff in the in the doorway in he comes in you see his a reflection of his glasses mm-hmm. by the way it's the most dimly lit hospital it room really is. in the world <laughs> <laughs> it's like for dramatic they light the hospital room for a dramatic effect it's a yeah. film noir at this point you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're trying to find who the murderer is no uh it's it, it but jeff comes in and he he realizes you know, how, how much things have changed, you know, when his brother talks about it. And they have that wonderful moment where they, they do that same name calling that they had yeah. back as, as kids. And he knows that, wait, this is actually Jeff. And, and, it, and it gives him, you know, that comfort that everything is going to be all right, but he's now scared because he knows that this is something that you can't undo. Um, yeah, I yeah. think the, uh, the, the hospital, it probably has well-lit rooms for like surgery, let's say, but in, they have a special room where you're, they're going to reunite with you with your family. And for that room, they have the dramatic lighting. <laughs> <laughs> it almost reminded me of like an airplane when it's, when you're flying at night and they cut, shut the cabin lights down so you can see better. <laughs> Yeah, and it was time for him to get some rest. So. Right. So at the, during the same time that all these scenes are going on, we see we see a little bit of what's happening with the spaceship, mm-hmm. and and it's it's really interesting. It's it, uh, it this we see a, a spaceship in the middle of of basically power lines. Um, yes. there's, there's a night watchman at the power lines. I don't know why there's a night watchman at the power lines, but he gives this report of the, the spaceship talking about it and how it can just be moved by pushing it. You know, it, it does no, doesn't make any sounds. It's just floating there. Um, and they decide to load this spaceship on a truck and, and mm-hmm. take it to this, this NASA facility. Um, we were introduced to the, the scientist, uh, Dr. Faraday, Who's um, like the villain of the movie, kind of. As yeah. much as this movie has a villain, like it, right. it's very tame for for because it's PG. But he is 
if you're reaching for it, if you need an antagonist, he yeah. is it in this movie. And really his biggest villainous thing he does is just misleading the parents on, yes. you know, how much they'll yeah, he, actually be able to see their son. And then, of course, once he's missing, not telling the truth that they don't know where he is and he's been absconded. And right. If anything, he's just, he's yeah. just a, a not nice person. He's not a villain. Right. Yeah. He's not evil. He just doesn't have his priorities in order. Yeah, he's definitely not good with kids. And, <laughs> and yeah, so Louis Faraday is his name. He's actually named after Michael Faraday, you know, who's yeah. a, a scientist in electromagnetism and electrochemistry. You know, he's probably more influential, influential than Benjamin Franklin for talking about electricity. And he's absolutely, you know, you know, the foundations of what science means in this film. So if, if we think of the two things that are, that are protagonists is kind of combating it's family versus, versus this, this world of science and outer space. And he's got to find this balance and he doesn't want to go overboard and, and he doesn't want, he definitely doesn't want to stay around at NASA. So the spaceship is, is brought to NASA. We see a very mm-hmm. similar shot than we see when we saw on, in my science project of the spaceship in this, this hangar, you know, mm-hmm. they have it tied down and they're trying to get in and the, 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 the spaceship is hermetically sealed. You know, there's nothing that can get in or get out and they can't even get through with a blowtorch. Um, you know, Jason, you mentioned, you mentioned my science project and I do want to say um, earlier you said you're not sure why they had a night watchman at the electrical grid or at the power station. And I think we, <laughs> both, we both know why. And it's because some kids might come along and plant C4 <laughs> on a power line. <laughs> they might blow up the power line. So they had to put a night watchman there. They heard yeah. that there were some problems going on over in Carson. <laughs> and so they had to set up a night watchman. Yep. Um, so yes, David gets brought to NASA so they can study him. And I, I like to write down whenever a movie has science talk, I like to, I like to write down some of the dialogue so we can try to unpack it. So David was plugged in and they realized, uh, one, one of the, the women that's analyzing him says he's transmitting <laughs> alpha waves with complex frequency patterns in them coming in at 12.78 cycles per second. Rochelle, go ahead. You're he's already laughing at that. He's, he's co- communicating with the computer in binary code. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm not even a big sciencey person. I even looked at Jason. I was like, well, you mean like in all zeros and ones? Like, I didn't know what she's talking about. Like, <laughs> just like you said, it's just kind of like computer speak. Yeah, yeah. computer talk. And, and then uh, it sounded good. Later on, yeah, his his, his digital computer brain starts controlling, you know, all the computers in the room, and it starts responding back to Dr. Faraday uh, without David's will. So basically, Faraday starts talking to David, uh, Dr. Faraday starts talking to David's brain Mm -hmm. as a computer, and David's responding on the screen. By showing him a Stargate and... Yeah, something similar. So he shows a spaceship. blueprint of the... Spaceship. Right. Yeah. So what? Yeah. The, the yeah. graphic user interface that that right turns into this wireframe of the spaceship, and and, and it's interesting because he asks them where he's been, and mm. uh, David's brain says Phalon, and how far is Phalon? You know, five hundred and sixty light years away. Mm-hmm. And then he asked him, how long did it take you to get there? And he said, 2.2 solar hours. And this is the revelation of of basically the science to this film, which is, which is um, time dilation. Light speed theory. Right. Light speed theory, as they say in the film, which is time dilation theorized by Albert Einstein. Basically, as an object approaches the speed of light, um, the time 
uh, relative to the time around it is slower. So what could have been 4.4 hours for David to everyone on earth ultimately is about eight years, Mm -hmm. which is why David has an age. He's been on this spaceship for about four and a half hours traveling to Phalon back. And then, and then at the end of the scene, which is, which is interesting, he, he, Dr. Faraday asks David for where is Phalon? And he Mm -hmm. starts going through these star charts in David's mind, which aren't on any of their computers and finally generates this planetoid system and, points to there's like some some alien you know uh text and he points to is this phalon and then uh, of course david's computer mind says yes um so i i gotta say the the science speak that we are uh that we were just talking about it's it does sound very like movie sciencey but i would say they there is some actual nasa research and there there is some they clearly consulted with nasa nasa helped uh, i think produce the film but Alpha brainwaves are generally uh, like 8 to 12 hertz. And I think that's what she meant by like 12.78 cycles per second. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a NASA scientist. But <laughs> alpha waves are the brainwaves that are, are dominant during like meditation or people, people consider them like the, your presence. When you're present, your right. alpha waves are what are active. So... What's interesting about that is they're talking about him transmitting alpha waves, but he is absolutely not present in like he's trying he's kind of panicking in the chair because no one's paying attention to him. Yeah. They're just paying attention to the computer screens and asking him questions that he's not interested in answering. So it's right. kind of interesting like his brain is doing two different things at once. Mm-hmm. And that comes back later when we get the explanation of what Max actually did to him because Max has analyzed that humans only use 10% of our brains. So they, his, his species, are we going to call it, or his people or wherever he comes from, they have this method of using that other 90% for basically hard drive storage. Yeah. Yeah. They decided to abduct David and experiment on him to see what would happen. Mm -hmm. Basically use him as a flash drive. (laughs) Right. A US, like a David flash drive. And, yep. uh, and, and that uh, we learned, though, shortly after that David, of course, his mind, his feeble mind can't handle it and he leaks. Mm-hmm. I don't know what a mind leak is. Maybe this is the mind leak where it comes out into the computer and starts controlling other technology. That's the mm-hmm. only thing I could think of it, of what a leak actually is. That's, I mean, I, whenever, whenever they said that line in the, in the movie when I was a kid, I didn't un- quite understand what that reference was, what the leaking of the brain was. Yeah, because he Max he, Max teases him about that later. Yeah, when we he talk says, about Navigator. I do not leak. You leak. Remember? Yeah, when, when they're they under water. Yeah. yeah. So that that that's the only thing I can think of, of what a mind leak is. Is that your your mind will start to just inject eject information out on without your willingness, and that's would explain why he can control the computer. Yeah. You know, without his without without his own free will. So the then they David gets this <laughs> David gets his own room at NASA and when they bring him in I was I'm 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 a toy collector and <laughs> I'm very into I've always my whole life been into like action figures toys so when David walked into this room, I paused just so I could write down all of the cool 80s, 80s yep. toys that they gave him because it was like Christmas morning on this kid's bed. I did the exactly um, same thing. I paused the film. I wrote every single toy down. I've, I tried to figure out what exactly it was. Mm-hmm. And so, number one, it's, it's any kid's dream 
to yeah. live at NASA, right? To be there where the spaceships are, where they're launching space shuttles. His door, his his room is a, is a cool room. There's a couple of weird things that are in there. There's a pocket. Like a, two, like a very obvious two-way mirror, which very he obvious immediately susses. He right. susses like, that immediately. I've seen TV. Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, and, but there's like a pocket door, which is automated and slides in and out like Star Trek. Yep. And we realize ultimately it's a prison door. It's it's locks on the outside, so he can't get out from that door. But it is a, a very futuristic thing and random to have in a room. But looking around that that room when you first walk in, walk in there, it's like a, a children's dream. And the yeah. number one thing that you see is transformers. Just there's Dude. transformers everywhere. And I'm not sure if they had a specific product placement deal <laughs> with Mattel at well, the time. But there's Hasbro. so many trans- Hasbro at the time, sorry. Hasbro. But um, the, the, the 1986, the, the Transformers animated movie came out the same year. It came out in 1986. Okay. So what's, I actually, I paused so I could figure out exactly what Transformer, w- they got him. Uh, <laughs> I, I, it and, was it Starscream? Shrapnel. I okay. yeah. It, it took me. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna tell you my whole process because I because <laughs> I paused it. Yeah. I was like, it's purple, but a lot of Decepticons are purple. Right. And so I was like, all right, which ones do I know? I know it's not Shockwave or Soundwave. I can tell right. from the shape of it. Maybe it's Skywarp. And then I looked up all of the Transformers toys that came out that year, and it, it is Shrapnel, the Insecticon leader, who was <laughs> featured in the in the Transformers animated film. Which, yeah. by the way, Robots vs. Dinosaurs covered on last week's episode. Yeah. So, or actually a few weeks ago. But one thing that, that really stood out to me was imagine you're a kid and, and it's Christmas morning and you get all of these awesome toys that are the toys that are like top of the line right now. Imagine getting a bunch of toys that are top of the line six years in the future and you've never seen them and you jumped right. ahead six. Like that would be mind blowing, right? Right. But at the same time, though, remember, he's 12, so he's aging out of these toys, too. That's another good point. Yeah, Rochelle, how did you feel about that? Because I kind of had that thought that, like, they're treating this kid like he's a little bit younger than he actually is. What did you Um, think? I felt like, to be perfectly honest, I'm more at the time, from my perspective, I'm have had two siblings and I was the oldest had share room with my sister. So seeing this movie, I actually went with my mom for mommy daughter day for our, for my birthday, for my eighth birthday. And uh, so we went and saw it alone. And I remember seeing not just the fact that he's at NASA and that's really cool, but like, Oh man, he's got this room. He doesn't have to share it with anybody. He gets all those toys to himself. He gets all the soda he wants. Like, mm-hmm. it just seemed like TV. Yeah, TV all by himself. Like, I just like okay, yeah, it, it would stink not seeing your parents, but you know, it doesn't really seem that bad. I was actually very jealous. And the toys, for me being a young girl, I wasn't as into you know, Transformers and things like that. It did look like, though, the way they had it set up, like you said, though, like Christmas morning, sometimes presentation is everything, just how they're all Mm. stacked all around. I don't know. You don't really see him play with toys that much in the beginning of the movie when he was in his element. So it's hard to say. Like, yeah, yeah. Know. They get him, they get him a lot the... of like pro NASA stuff. They get him like That's a, for sure. a couple of space shuttles. Well, it's like when you book. get rescued from the FBI, you get an FBI hat. So when <laughs> yeah. you go and are basically kidnapped by NASA, you get a NASA hat. 
which is the yeah. only thing yeah he takes he doesn't really touch any of the rest of the toys it is an interesting nod though in terms of what david likes you know he's got the telescope you know, which shows that he has an interest in, you know, stellar bodies, you know, what's outside of the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a good nod to that. You know, he, he is open and willing to accept things like aliens or extraterrestrials. And the question is, at what point does he realize what's going on? Because from this point where he's right. here at the facility and they're doing tests on him and he's controlling computers with his mind without knowing, he gets these sub these kind of subconscious telepathy messages from something. And it ends up being the spaceship calling for him. It ends up being Max calling for him, which leads us to the next, the next point. So we have, we're introduced to our, our Sarah Jessica Parker's character. And, yes, we are. And, Sarah Jessica Parker and Ralph. And Ralph. So what does Ralph stand for? Ralph stands for Robot Assistant Labor Facilitator. And, and basically, Sarah Jessica Parker's. I'm just going to call her Sarah Jessica Parker's. What's her real name? Jessica? What is it? Carol. Uh, Carol. Carol like McAdams. McAdams. Carol McAdams. Carolyn Carolyn. Carolyn. I'm just going to call her Sarah Jessica Parker from now on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. So Carol, Carol introduces Ralph. This is a robot, which basically looks like a diner cart automated diner cart (laughs) yeah it conveniently has a panel on the side that's easy to open and fits an entire kid right it it, it says mail on it it's got a like a flashing light on it (laughs) pardon me coming through she describes it as it delivers mail and supplies but he messes up a little bit every now and then so that's why she's like i liked that a lot i liked that that (laughs) it's a a flawed robot Yes. And so it gives her purpose to like to fix the Ralph, fix Ralph, to maintain Ralph, to, you know, pick up where Ralph, you know, drops things. And, and but it also, uh, it also humanizes Ralph in a way, doesn't it? Cause like, mm-hmm. like with the dogs dropping the Frisbees every once in a while, we're not mad at those dogs for no. dropping the Frisbees. They tried their best. Ralph's right. a and good Ralph, robot. <laughs> yeah. Ralph's like a good robot dog. Ralph has limited <laughs> vocabulary. He says only pardon me coming through. Yes. He says it multiple times in the film, but yeah, pardon me coming through, but it lets you know that he's there. Yeah. And in yeah, definitely a, a, a stark contrast to to Max in terms of robots in comparison. Um, and because this is our he's best nowhere, robot at the time. Because Ralph is nowhere near the Uncanny Valley in any way, he's non-threatening. Or it, I should say, it is non-threatening. You know what? This is this is a discussion I like to have sometimes with guests. When does a robot have gender? Mm-hmm. When Anybody a, can take this question. Yeah. When well, does a I robot mean, have gender? Carolyn calls him a him. She oh, good said, point. She says he delivers mail and he messes up every now and then. Yeah. So okay. she gives him one. I mean, but I, I don't know. I guess it just really depends on this, on the robot. Gender is assigned by cultural norms. It's not really a thing that's mm-hmm. a construct that we can see tangibly it's it's accepted norms so his name is ralph so i guess that's the only way that they associate him being as a gender male and they modulated the voice to sound like a male voice right those are the two things that make it gendered male male voice or a very heavy female smoker (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just i think it's interesting when 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 a robot is gendered because sometimes it's just considered it sometimes people in the movie will use the term it or that, but sometimes the, it's much easier to talk about it from their perspective or for, I, for the characters in the movie to talk about it with like a he or she or give it a name. I feel like in most movies, it seems like the default gender, if one were to be assigned, is male. Just from what I've seen, um, not counting like, you know, um, 
from Spaceballs, the one that Joan Rivers played. Dot Matrix. Dot, Dot Matrix. Matrix. <laughs> she was obviously female. Yeah, to make a contrast. Rosie, the robot, and yeah. Jetsons. Yeah, so you, but usually yeah. female robots are to make a like a humorous point or contrast to what are typically male robots, like C-3PO, right. which is considered not male. He's gender neutral, but, right, but most right. people associate him as being a boy robot, right. which, is, which is odd. Or female robots can sometimes maybe sound more like an automated system or yes. you know like um, yeah like the computer uh, in star trek the next in star right. trek the next generation or in that one video game what resident evil or whatever yeah the red queen the red yeah, queen the red yeah, queen. You're yeah it's usually a, a body <laughs> bodiless ai if it's a bodiless right. ai it tends to be a female voice but if yes. it has some sort of sort of bipedal humanoid form often or or if it's on wheels or like boxy Often it has a male modulated voice and they're, they refer to it as he. And I don't, I don't know about, have a conclusion to draw on that. I just think it's interesting to talk yeah, about. I don't know necessarily AIs are all gender female because, I mean, Hal is typically a male voice. Not all of them, but like I the feel most like deadly I can think AI of more Hal. examples with females just offhand. Yeah. But. I don't know. It, it's an interesting thing that we assign gender to things. Yeah, because we do it to like ships and cars and stuff. Mm. But when you're actually giving it a personality and a voice, I feel like there's more we should take more responsibility for making it gender neutral or for, you know, just, just uh, uh, considering how people are going to interact with the robot, I think should always be considered. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so David's hearing this voice in his head. It sounds like, it sounds like a gendered male. When he goes into the robot, into the spaceship, he talks to the ship. It sounds like a male. So David assigns him the, the gender role male. We don't know if Max is male or female. Actually, it would be a complete. It would be a very interesting film if it was a female actor doing the role, uh, and and they assigned it a different role, like a different name. It, it would be very interesting as well. Actually, I would love to see that film in in and see what would what it would turn out to be. Maybe um, we could get Whoopi Goldberg to voice <laughs> Max. <laughs> we could. <laughs> when we do that, we, we would say, who would we replace? Uh, Whoopi Goldberg as Max. However, I'm not sure Whoopi Goldberg, you know, she's definitely got the, the sincerity, but I'm not sure she, she has like the Paul Rubens, you know, comic chops with the, the parodies of television and, and film and, and, and rice aroni commercials. Uh, he definitely yeah. has that down lock. We'll get back, we'll get back to that. We'll get we'll back get, to that. We'll, get, we'll, we'll yeah. still ponder that question. We'll, <laughs> we'll put that on the back. <laughs> so yeah so we hit these telepathy messages from from the ship um mm-hmm. calling david to go save him this is save me and uh which is very similar to et i'm not sure if there's they're a direct- lot of yeah there's there's a lot of parallels to et and there's there's a direct reference to et in the movie yeah there remember. is one direct reference and we'll get to that probably but the uh, there's a lot of parallels into the fact that you know et is communicating with elliot through telepathy and at one point oh, et yeah. E.T. Oh, you're talking about E.T. <laughs> at one point, E.T.'s drunk at the house, drinking the beer in the fridge. <laughs> yeah. And and Elliot becomes drunk in the science, in like lab. science class. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, 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 uh, and uh, Elliot comes Kisses to the conclusion. The right. Elliot comes to the conclusion that he must save him. And he's, I mean, we're not sure if he's talking about E.T., saving E.T. Uh, to send E.T. home, or if he's talking about the frogs that they're about to dissect. Mm-hmm. And Elliot becomes an anarchist and decides to save the frogs and, and set them free back to the river, back to the forest. Mm-hmm. So basically, there's a little, bit of time, a little bit of telepathy happening there. We're not sure if that's happening in this movie with now David being taken to the ship, being drawn to the ship to be saved. But this is the question that I have now. So what happens is our robot friend Ralph shows up. He appears late at night 
at David's door. The door opens automatically. It was in the morning, but yeah. In the morning, yeah. The the robot appears automatically. The door opens up. David gets into the robot, and now the robot takes him across the entire base, NASA base, to the hangar where the ship is being kept. Now, the question I have is, did David attract Ralph, or did the ship send Ralph? Carolyn, I think, helped... She sent Ralph because he said, you've got to get me out of here. Contact my parents. I think she may have sent Ralph to help get him out of the room. I don't know. To what end? I don't know how Ralph knew to take him to the hangar. Right. To what end would she do that? As a kid, I thought that. But then I realized he asked her to contact his parents. Right. Not to get him. And also said, you have to help get me out of here. Yeah, you have to help him get out. He's talking about his parents. So the older I get, the more I think about it. I think that Ralph is either being controlled by his leaking brain Mm. or being controlled by Max. And Max is sending Ralph to help save him. Maybe. Yeah, those are... Thought. Those are interesting theories, but I I do think that it it's Carol Carolyn that programmed it because like you know like we said it's that's kind of her purpose at NASA that's what she does. But he messes uh, and, up every now and then. That would be such a faulty way of getting him out and safe. Well, she can't smuggle him under her lab coat. So, so. then, if it's yeah. if it's a if, <laughs> but if, Ralph if, can <laughs> Ralph can yeah. If Ralph messes up all the ways, it's just a pure coincidence. He that almost he got run over by a truck on the right, way out. A big so. giant truck. But it's um, it's what I was saying earlier about how he's so non-human and he doesn't have he, his voice is so modulated. He's so far from the uncanny valley. Nobody's threatened from by him or even looks twice mm-hmm. at him. What am yeah. I favorite? like? How much how much do you do you to pay attention to your room? when it's doing what it does yeah you you, you mentioned the uncanny valley you mentioned the you know the 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 space that they're in their nasa base one of my favorite shots in the film is when they have the spaceship on the back of this the tractor trailer um and it's being led down the highway and you mm-hmm. get the sense of how how large and unusual this spaceship is you it's know it's a cool being, looking ship it's a really cool looking ship and you get whenever i see you know tractor trailers taking things on the highway from one place to another i see something big on it i was saying oh wait is, is that a ufo is that it since i was a kid i think that now um yep. just because that shot is is such a an interesting and unusual shot but the yeah, ship itself see a double wide right <laughs> well you think of optimus prime um well, sure of course <laughs> transform um, and roll out <laughs> Uh, but the but the ship itself is just so unique. Uh, it is cool, and you mentioned the hermetically seal. It's hermetically sealed, and when it when it releases the floating stairs, it's really cool looking. And what I love about it is it doesn't matter what the CG or what the effect looked like in in 1986 because it just looks alien. Right, mm-hmm. just looks non nothing of this earth, and it's moving in an unnatural way and sort of transforming itself in an unnatural way. So it just works even watching this in 2020. There's something unusual about it being just entirely chrome. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, it just, it's just this, this chrome, almost floating orb, this tear, teardrop orb. We don't get a sense of it at first when, when it's coming down the highway, covered in, on the tractor trip, on the semi-truck. Um, you don't get a sense when it's in the hangar. Um, but 
uh, it's shortly after when David gets in and all of the Nasha guards come to try to get David out. Um, the, you know, of course, Max comes to life, uh, shocks the, you know, the, the, the doors that are closing the hangar and, and releases, you know, himself out into the world. Um, you can see how just out of this world the ship is. You know, it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's completely mirror polished. Uh, and at one point, then you see it transform. You see it change shape from a teardrop shape almost to kind of like a, a like a pointed bullet shape. Um, and uh, and that, that that's at, at that point, you know, it was when you see it, it's going to do a, um, a, a, a what is it a what type of maneuver is it? It's a um, level uh, one maneuver. Level one maneuver. Yeah. Okay. And when when it shows when it tries to you know of course you know get out of there. Uh, but you make a great point about the uh, the steps, <laughs> those fluid steps. Um, Can I ask you something? The 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 level one maneuver when when David first gets in, it seems like Max is greeting him or saying "sit down." I think in multiple languages until <laughs> Matt until David responds in English, and then he says "sit down" in English. Because yeah. the only one I recognized was I think he said "asseyez-vous." which is French. And then he went through a bunch of other phrases that sounded very similar. So I assumed he was like cycling through European languages, but yeah. with the same phrase sit down. Is that right? Or am I, I think I got that. That's okay. what I assume from that. Okay. So we, we said that he doesn't really have a personality at first, but what my question is, does he have pride? Because the way he talks about, Oh, that was just a level three maneuver. I watch this. I can do a level one maneuver mm-hmm. that happens before the brain download. So is that like pride or is that simply matter of fact? I think in that case, it was a matter of fact. And, um, but he does show like little signs of personality. I felt like when it's, uh, he's like, oh, what are we doing way up here? When they go straight up and he says, oh, you wanted to go 30 miles from the location. He said, I didn't mean straight up. I meant along the ground. He's like, Oh. Yeah, he does ex- <laughs> have the exclamation O. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little quirks like that. But I, I think I do I do like the very uh, matter of fact response when he's when he when Max first or David first sits down and Max uh, he says, Cool. And Max responds, Would you like me to adjust the temperature? <laughs> right. Yes. I, I think a lot of it is very similar to I know you don't not a large fan of Star Trek, the next generation, Lou, but but a lot of it is similar to the character data. Um, mm. In the beginning of the series, Data is very much an automaton at times. You know, he doesn't have that character and personality and emotion. And as the series progresses, he learns to be more human and he embraces his existence, you know, along with humans and, and learns how to interact with them. So I think a lot of the character Max is the same way. I mean, more leaps and bounds at times, uh, mm-hmm. but he, this is his first encounter with a human at, and when, when David comes into the ship, so he's a little, little cold, a little standoffish, but, but he does have character and personality. Um, and, and compassion. Because yeah. when, we, when we find out that he has a menagerie of aliens uh, that he's yeah. abducted, he has full like intent. That he feeds and takes yes. care of. Which, like, he could, this could be a very scary, coldly efficient movie robot where it's, you know, doing this in the name of science and it's collecting specimens and it has no concern with their well-being. But Max is very very concerned with the Pug Marin and mm-hmm. the other Jim Henson Muppets that we see uh, in his in his hold in in the ship. Yeah, we realize that Max has some ethics. Once we exp- well, he, he explains to David that he's he's 
his mission is to take specimens from planets and observe them and then return them back to, to whence he got them, you know, in their pl- place and time. Um, and he can't do that with David because of his fragile brain. Body wouldn't survive the time travel journey. It, he has some type of ethics of morality of, of correcting what he does and putting things back as the way he found them and not interfering. Uh, it, it, it might just be a factor that he just doesn't have any character. You know, he's not what are they? completely autonomous as a drone ship. He just doesn't have any character that we know as humans. What do they call it in Star Trek? The first first directive? First contact. The prime but they, they have prime direct prime direct. It's like a right. rule that they don't they observe, but they don't interfere. Right. Pre warp right? civilizations they don't interfere with their development. Um, that's it's is basically the the prime directive is what what fuels the Federation's uh, hands off approach to cultures and the development of species. So uh, since Max is a, a drone from some culture, some advanced culture on Phalon or somewhere, he has a version of that prime directive that he sticks to, it seems like. But he it's has some type exactly of ethical program, Star Trek yeah. one, but yeah, it, yeah it's it, ethical. Yeah, it's some, some type of ethical um, programming. Um, but it, it's, it's funny because we... See, so Max is itself as as a robot. We have to talk about what he looks like. He's, the entire inside yes. of the ship is just mirror. It's like a mirror ball. Well, let's talk about which parts of the ship are Max and which part... Is there is there a let's say like a hard drive somewhere inside of Max or a CPU that you could take out of the ship and put into a different machine and it would have the same personality or same quirks or, or act the same? Or is, it, is its body so completely tied to being the ship and everything inside of the ship? Right. So when David comes into the ship, we, we encounter Max first as being this kind of closed it's an arm with an eye basically. And the mm-hmm. eye has this shield over it, kind of like a closed lid and it, it opens up. And then we have all the eye turns into you know, multicolored lights. You know, Max has these fins on the side of his face, which resemble ears and a, a unibrow kind of that moves up and down as it talks. So it has some type of character and personality as it speaks. And, uh, and at the same time, during one comical scene, it has these protruding arms that hold a map at one point when they get lost. So Max has some type of mobility uh, is, as this arm that moves within the spaceship. So it has some freedom, but it's, it's definitely confined to the inside of the spaceship. And I guess I said, it blurs the question is what is Max? Is it the spaceship? Is it just this, this arm in the spaceship? I don't think Max is necessarily just that little arm, uh, you know, or that little sphere uh, as an attachment to the spaceship. And that could be moved in something else. I think that Max is a representative of the ship as a whole, like the whole ship mm. is his body because yeah. he's, he's like, it's not like my ship can only go, can move this way, can move this way. It's like, I can move this right. way. I can go. Yeah. You know, I can speak this many languages and I can go this fast and this high and yeah. all that. You know, it's not that this vessel that I operate can't, I can Yes. That's a really good point because David, David, uh, David asked at one point, can you pick up radio waves? And he says, I'm, I'm equipped to receive mm-hmm. over 2 million forms of radio waves, right. which, by the way, I'm pretty sure is a C-3PO reference. <laughs> I, I am fluent in over 6 million forms of communication right. is, the, is the line for Star Wars, right? But yeah, he, it's, it's interesting that it's I am equipped. I can move this way. And yeah, that's a, that's a really good point, Rochelle. Man, it, I didn't it, think There's also that. the... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm we, 
concerned, well, not concerned, I'm confused as to how the ship is piloted. Because mm-hmm. if Max is the ship, then why does it need any type of mechanics within the ship to pilot it? At one point, he raises a seat for David to sit mm-hmm. in. And another point, because he wants David to learn how to fly, shortly after he downloads information from David's brain, he, he basically shuts down and forces David to learn how he to push buttons. Out of spite. Yeah, out of spite. <laughs> he, yeah, the, to learn how to better, push buttons. Better do something, big shot. You're yeah, not even exactly. trying. exactly. You think you can do it, then you fly it. Hey, hockey puck, it's right underneath your nose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he does he does that that whole entire thing and in and suddenly now like a pilot's uh you know, helm is above is in front of him. And he learned David now can pilot the ship inside it. Well, so remember there, David has the star charts in his right. head that he needs. Right. That's why he tells him even before he's downloaded, he's like, You are the navigator. But if this stuff is inside <laughs> the ship, it are people on Phalon like David? Can they pilot ships? I think it's a thing where possibly, yes, because because otherwise, why would the throne, the seat, the the captain's chair be made for a bipedal form like David? It also seems to be modular. It also seems like it could adjust to a different form because like if a different uh, one of those aliens like in in the menagerie, for example, and needed to pilot the ship, he might be able to adjust his seat oh, yeah. to accommodate them. I don't doubt a little tiny chair could Can come you fix out the for seat? the Pug Marin or <laughs> any of them that he deemed intelligent enough to give it a try. Obviously, yeah. Phalonites are, are much larger than David, yeah. Yeah, well, he's, he hasn't grown in yeah. eight well, years, so. Here's, I, I think that it might be a thing where where Max could completely do everything, but it's the difference between piloting the ship by yourself and having a co-pilot there to sort of ease ease the burden a little bit. And I think that might be why he's letting, part of why he's letting David drive also to sort of reward David for helping him and to placate David in a way because David doesn't seem to trust him. So I think him putting trust in David is buying trust from him as well. They come into this deal. Uh, I'll give you the star charts. I'll let you scan my brain. If yeah. you take me back to my parents. Yeah. And I think letting him pilot the ship is part of that. Like, I'm going to offer you that too. Cause well, what, what happens at one point is that, you know, they, uh, Max tries to take him home, but gets lost. Max actually yeah. takes him to Tokyo. <laughs> yeah. And David tells him, you don't know what you're doing. You have all these star charts and you have no idea where to go. And he says, well, fine, then you tell me how to get there. And, and, that's, and that's the point where, of course, they, you know, they, they go back across the seas. There's... I, I'm confused as to how Max becomes Max as we know him at the end of the film. So is it because David's brain leaks and so personality comes out as well? Well, yeah. When he scans his brain, he gets he got more, than, more than the star charts. More than the star and charts. he gets all his memories and all his cultural references and... Mm-hmm all his secrets and everything else. So that's why he just starts kind of regurgitating it back to him. Right. And it helps him develop. Cause as we said, he already had a little bit of a personality where he seemed like he had some empathy mm-hmm. and some ethics about him and such. So he didn't have any just character. Didn't have any character. So that <laughs> helped him 
do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, and he says I, to he says to David before he downloads it, I need the superior information in your in inferior, inferior brain. brain. Yep. Love that. Exactly. There's also that point, um, he repeats the same lines that he says with his brother. He does. But he and, calls them nicknames. Yeah. So and he says mm. his, what his dad said, if you want to learn to swim, you gotta jump in the water. Don't right. to bruiser. Right. Yeah. So Max at the Aww. same time as all bruiser. of his family mm-hmm. combined to one. It's like it's like Max is is everything that he remembers from his past now there with him in the ship. It's it's really really interesting. It's like it's like having yeah. a brother in the ship with you. Yeah. And and they they bond over getting home. Yeah, he he's very antagonistic in a little brother kind of way. And they and they and they have that dynamic which is really really fun. And well, okay, so there's there is one moment where uh <laughs> and I'm bringing this up so we could talk about the the ET reference. They are trying to get back to Fort Lauderdale, and David sees Al's Gator City. Mm-hmm. And so two things here. One, the sign says on the top of the building, Al's Gator City. And Max says, and that must be Big Al. <laughs> I rewound the movie because it does not say Big Al's Gator City. Nope. <laughs> Max just really, really, really wanted to set up some, some fat shaming jokes. <laughs> I, I do not like this. <laughs> It's just mean. I gotta it's like, say, it, when I was yeah. little, it was one of my favorite parts of the movie. Now, being mm. older, I feel badly about that. Yeah, he says too many Twinkies. <laughs> yes, <laughs> like, yeah, he's all about it's me. It is very. It's not. Mean. But I, I love, I love whoever this actor is that plays Al because he does so much with just like staring, staring. Yeah. dumbfoundedly. <laughs> it's so good. And then he, he finally says he just wanted to phone home. Which, yeah. my question is, is that a reference to the movie E.T.? Like, yeah. in, this, in this world, has Al seen the movie E.T.? And that's why this is like so stunning and such a coincidence to him? Or is that just a cheeky reference that the screenwriter threw in? It's a cheeky reference, you know, because he asked him for change to call his parents. And so it's a cheeky reference right there. David asks Al for change to to call his parents. And then he uses that change also to buy a candy bar. Um, Lou, we just got to stop for a moment. Rochelle is going to head to bed. Yeah, I'm sorry. Okay, no problem. I can can finish off. Is there any specific questions you want to ask her before she heads to bed? Yes, Rochelle. One big question. What's your snack? Oh, what, gosh. did you uh, did you eat any snacks while watching this movie, or do you have a favorite movie snack? So I, you know, we've been undergoing a very restrictive diet lately. But when I'm not on any kind of restrictive diet, I like uh, raisinets, dark mm. chocolate if if possible, and uh, of course, if we're at a movie theater, popcorn with butter layered throughout. Okay. Would this movie be improved if we replaced any of the two actors with Whoopi Goldberg and Danny DeVito and which actors? We've already Uh, sort of discussed (laughs) replacing Paul Rubens with Whoopi Goldberg, but what are your thoughts? I don't know if it would be improved with, I I love the cast as it is, um, but if, if I had to inject Danny DeVito and Whoopi Goldberg into any roles, I think it would be fun to have maybe Danny DeVito play Dr. Faraday. I could see that being kind of fun. I could see him getting very exasperated with how the search is going and convincing the parents, like getting in their faces and convincing them to let their son go with him. Um, And then I think maybe Whoopi Goldberg, I feel bad, Sarah Jessica Parker, but maybe she could play Carolyn and be just bring a different kind of sass to the whole Carolyn McAdams role. Definitely. I think, I mean... 
I, she's I think, also very maternal. And yeah. I think that would be nice. Yeah. There's, there's yeah. very few characters that really don't hold their own in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, <sighs> Whoopi Goldberg would be fantastic in any role. And I don't want to replace anyone and and then and then of course she just like shows them up. Yeah. But I think Danny DeVito because he's just got such a distinctive voice. Yeah. He mm-hmm. would be great as the Puck Marin. <laughs> I was gonna say the Puck Marin. <laughs> <laughs> he's got a, He sounds kind of like a Muppet. That's true. With the, like a Jimmy Durante voice. It's kind of funny. Pug Marin but... or Ralph. Danny or... DeVito as Ralph. <laughs> Rochelle, I have one final question, yeah. and it is. Would you give this movie a plus one or a minus one for its representation of robots? Let's teach people something super quick. Every year, uh, more people die from getting hit on the head with coconuts than they do from shark attacks. (laughs) (laughs) Like dead dead? It's not that many because like only like one or two people, I think, die from shark attacks every year. The low teens for the coconuts. Coconuts are hard. Teach me something good. good. Now on your local favorite podcast thing. (laughs) Yeah, all podcast things. Oh, um, shoot. It can't just be in the middle, huh? It has to be. It can be. No, I I should have given you that option. It can be neutral. It can be neutral. I'm thinking neutral only because I don't, because I don't, I mean, okay, Ralph, I think of as like a robot that does like a service. And then Max, because of his personality traits, whether adopted or not, and then the fact that he's, basically an alien it's a representation but i don't know i would say neutral to plus one does that help at yeah. all yeah it's so so mostly positive it's mostly yeah. oh you it's a positive mostly... one i just thought uh, yeah i'm not saying it's like a, a, a negative representation i just didn't know it depends on your definition of robot as we said that there's kind of a couple different ways to define that so i don't know if it's truly representative but i wouldn't say it presents them in a bad light either way when somebody mentions the concept of a robot or just the term robot do you con- do you get a mental image of a specific robot? And if so, is it any of the robots in this movie? I do get an image when someone says the word robot of you know, uh, things that come to mind. And I will say it wouldn't be this movie. It wouldn't be anything in this movie. Maybe Ralph if hard pressed, but I wouldn't, it wouldn't be any of the quote robots from this movie. What would it be? Um, something like... Um, uh, short circuit Johnny Five. I think of that as more of a robot. Um, okay, we have to talk about short circuit oh, well, and Johnny Five. That's going to be another time. No, we have to talk about it right now. <laughs> okay, so we talked about short circuit not uh, two well, in let, our last let, podcast. Let me, let's let Rochelle go. <laughs> well, Rochelle, I do. I just want to say thank you very much for being on the on the show today, and uh, I really hope you will come back sometime so we could talk a lot about short circuit. Maybe that could be a movie we talk about in the future sure. on robots versus dinosaurs. No problem. I'd All right, thank you so that. much. Thank you very much, guys. You have a good night. No, thank you. Um, thank you so much. No, um, so the we were talking about Short Circuit, and uh, Rochelle thinks Short Circuit 1 is better than Short Circuit 2. Okay. So I know you're in the Short Circuit 2 camp. She says she knows it better. She loves Ali Sheehy. I, so, think, that, I think that's also the reason I like it more. It's the more more 
present one to me. It's pro- so it's probably the one I've seen the most. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can talk about that another day, but finishing this conversation about robots and, uh, and, and, and this movie, um, what were we, were we, were we left off? Flight of the Navigator. What we were talking about <laughs> before, before we got into yeah, Goldberg so and, and Dan DeVito's discussion. Yeah. We were talking, well, go ahead. We're talking about the ship itself and Max in the ship is he part of the ship or is the ship something else? Max does, you know, some reprogramming. So he has to have some type of separate separation of him and the ship. But at the same time, he, he call he refers to the ship as himself. So we have to say both yes and no. Um, he's, he's attached, but not attached to the ship. I, um, he could probably exist outside the ship, just not without the function. Maybe. I have a big question about Max for you, Jason. Yeah. Is, did, did the aliens or the people or whatever we want to call them that built Max and sent Max out into the galaxy to do this whole research mission, did, does Max represent them as they are? And what I mean by that is like, for example, does the Mars rover, if, if, uh, if an alien was on Mars and it encountered the Mars rover, do you think that it would give that alien would look at the Mars rover and know what humans are like? Right. Yeah. That's the question. Like when we send out these probes into space to, to send back information for us to collect data and send it back, what else are we telling about ourselves? Are we just littering the universe ultimately? Uh, but like we had Voyager when we sent it out, for example, there was a gold disc inside, which had, you know, um, all, so many languages of the world and, and had a message of peace and, and, and a lot of information about what we represent in it. So are, are they doing the same thing with this ship? You know, are, are they just, is he a, just a drone uh, that's being sent out to mindlessly collect information and then report back to Phalon? Um, or, or is there something Phalon-esque in his design and his persona and, and, and what does it say about them? And are we doing the same thing? Have you seen the movie AI, Artificial Intelligence? Of course, yeah. Okay, so something that I think is interesting about the robots in that movie is they were built by humans, but they have certain, they're almost exactly like us, but there is there are major differences, mainly that they are nonviolent, that they are first and foremost compassionate and don't have, they don't really have the capacity to not be compassionate. And I think that might be true with Max. We might be getting this idealistic view of the people that built him because they deliberately left out their, their, their negative traits and they only programmed this science exploration robot that has to interact with various life forms with compassion and with approachability and with its ability to adapt to somebody and, and adapt its personality and sort of converse with almost anybody we have to kind of think that when david's brain his personality leaks into max that it's an accident um that it's not intentional um it's it's kind of like max has the potential of having this life as we know it but we and this is kind of a our weird humanity superiority context complex thinking that we need to to give him more their technology 
could be just so advanced is that you know we just rubbed off on him that, mm. that, that, that short interaction with with max well yes but the, the 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 pets are i think an example of like how prior to meeting david or interacting with any humans mm. there's proof those are proof that max is not a cold heartless emotionless you know uh science science drone that will just destroy what it studies you know mm-hmm. Yeah, the the uh, the animals, and I, I I went back when I watched the film, the uh, the the alien species. I wrote them down because it's oh. kind of like what kids think aliens are. Yeah, um, yeah. It's not it's not like unusual things that that you would see in typical sci-fi. It's more like okay, what would be cool for kids to see? And so the, there's a um, a garpuntal. Which, which one bite and he never lets go, almost takes off his like finger, uh, David's finger. It's kind of like this naked bird thing, which like hovers back and forth. Um, yeah, it's almost like a skexky, right? Yeah, from... like, uh, yeah. And then the Finasteris, which is from okay. this, this planet called Pixar Elliptic. <laughs> it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> it's, like it's, this jar hanging, this thing hanging from a jar with, with hair. And it is that the one that eats ink. his hat? No, no, that, that little squatty thing. Um, it doesn't say what it is. It just gets too close to it. He goes, warned David, don't get too close. And it just eats his hat, which is hilarious. Mm. Um, but then they had the, uh, this weird skinny horse kind of twig alien in a cloud. And then this like kind of like bulbous frog alien under glass, like it's a meal or something. And then, and then of course the funny joke of, of this slug alien in what looks like a Petri dish, just crawling around and making the slimy noise. And Dave was like, what's wrong with it? And he goes, Oh, he has a cold. <laughs> it's just, that was my favorite one. That yeah. one was my favorite because you talked about like, well, this is what a kid might imagine aliens. I, I actually, I kind of disagree with that because I think most kids would picture the aliens from like Independence Day or like from um, how they're talked about in X-Files where, you know, it's a big head, slender body. Oh, the common gray alien. The gray, yeah, the gray. So I think when you have something that is so completely alien, like this ooze slime thing crawling along and it's sick, <laughs> it, has a, it has a cold, the poor little guy. Like I, that's, that was my favorite one of them because it's so completely different from anything. And of course, the shock value of the giant eye that opens up as an alien screaming, "Ay, ay, 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 ay!" Yeah, that one was that one creeped me out the most. Screaming like Xena Warrior Princess, <laughs> or maybe it's a Pokemon and it can only say its own name. That's, that's it. What... It's a Pokemon. <laughs> that's what it's, it's just, just called. Ay, ay, ay. They also mention a alien that we don't see, which is called a Zigzag, which is like a hippo with feathers. Yep. Max says they're so hungry they could eat a Zigzag. <laughs> So, yes, there are, we see aliens, we see robots in this movie, and we see humans, and <laughs> and we see dogs, of course. We see dogs. So, Flight of the Navigator has a little bit of everything, and Jason, where where would you rank this movie? I, so, I actually, I want to ask you the same question I asked Rochelle before she had to go about robots, and when you when you hear the word robot or you think about robots do you does your how quickly does your mind jump to a robot from this movie you know or the, does it it's so it might when i first watched this movie it was an alien movie a spaceship movie and then of course i didn't quite realize it was a time travel movie when i first saw it when i was you know only four years old at the time same and then as i 
watched it older and older and older, realized, oh, wow, this is a time travel movie and it's a robot movie. Um, of course, uh, as I've mentioned before in previous, my my robot to go to is Johnny Five or or something from Star Wars uh, when I think of a robot. Uh, but this checks all the boxes. It, it really does for what a robot is. And, and one of my favorite robots, uh, like, like I mentioned, being Data from Star Trek, you know, mm-hmm. this, this android, uh, as Data likes to be referred, not a robot, uh, because he 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 learns how to become more like a human, and he wants to become human, um, kind of a like kind of a Pinocchio story almost. And and this character Max is very much like that. You know, he he doesn't he doesn't consciously want to become more like David, but but he ultimately does, and I believe he's better off for it. You know, he he learns tolerance, he learns acceptance, and he learns a little bit of character and fun. You know, throughout mm-hmm. the film, you know, he doesn't know what music is, for example. And David introduces him to music. He yeah. doesn't know how to laugh. David introduces him to laughter. You know, these things that we take for granted as as people, you know, robots aren't don't experience that. And so mm-hmm. the film celebrates the humanity of people in those ways. It does. You said something that hit my ear about data that he distinguishes him distinguishes himself as an android, not a robot. Yeah. Which I want to talk about because I I sometimes struggle with on this podcast when I when I ask a, a listener or I'm sorry when I ask a guest about their definition of a robot we often get into this this distinction between a cyborg for example which has some organic parts some some tech techno parts some metal or technological or cybernetic parts versus a android which is almost always a bipedal humanoid form, but I think I want to add something to my distinction of an android, which is that it is self-aware and it has its own personality. It is not controlled or programmed by somebody else. Yeah, so there's that question of an android, and I think one of the litmus tests is it's considered alive, um, a life form Mm. of its own. Okay. Uh, and the question then you want to ask about Max, is he alive? You know, is this, is he a life form? Uh, Does he have What would you say? I, I think he does. I think he does have sentience. He does have definitely I agree. ethics. He has morality. Yeah. Um, he has the ability to learn. He has the ability to grow. He has ability. I'm not sure if he has the ability to reproduce. That's one of the characteristics of life. Ooh. Um, okay. So we don't we, necessarily. There's know. no proof that he can't. Yeah. There's no proof that he can't. But, but he, 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 with the exception of reproducing, we might see some max reproduction at one point in some fan fiction, but. <laughs> Uh, it it, it has been almost uh it has been 30 years since this movie came out i'm certain that that fiction exists if you dig deep enough on the internet jason i'm certain oh no well there's there's the plans actually of making a sequel to this film and um colin trevorrow had had was was tapped at one point to do it um and then is it neil blomp Kim, what is how you pronounce his name? That, that yeah. District Nine. District he, Nine. Yep. There's a report that that his production company is also possibly working on it before COVID happened. Did you so, say sequel or remake? A se- sequel. I think it's a sequel. I, so I don't. I know. like that. I like the idea of a sequel to this yeah. movie. And and I would watch um I would watch a sequel by either of those directors because Neil Blomkamp is I mean District Nine is fantastic. Um, oh, also yeah. Chappie, have you seen Chappie? I have seen Chappie, another robot movie. It, he has a, a style to his mm-hmm. films, which which are almost like a video game, but but they're very sci-fi forward in terms of discussing the ethics of of, for example, robotics. Yeah, 
and the ethics of, of treating aliens with District 9. And I think this, that, uh, like he would be a, a key director to handling the same themes which are in this film. Laws of robotics like Asimov and, and of course, aliens encountering people and, and how we treat them or they treat us. But yeah, it'd be fantastic to have a sequel to this movie. Uh, it really would. It doesn't have to be you know, just directly the same characters, just exploring the similar themes and having it accessible for kids. You know, something out there that, that kids can grasp onto and really introduce them to the world of sci-fi. You know, one thing I, I yeah. take for granted is that I saw this before I got into Star Trek. Okay. I, I was, I, this launched me very much into the world. I, you know, it's easier to understand this film and to grasp the themes of family and time travel and aliens and what could be out there and how to treat others and learn through humanity than it is Star Wars. You know, Star yeah. Wars doesn't really have that moral through point at times. It's, it's very much an intergalactic war mm-hmm. um, and very political. But, but this film is, is, it takes out a lot of the essence of, of ultimately what most Disney films have, um, along with E.T., which is my favorite film, of course, of all time. Mm-hmm. I uh, will wrap up after this, but I just want to ask, what, we, what would you want from the sequel? Would you want Max to come back? Would you want to catch up with Jeff and David and, and the rest of the Freemans? Well, I mean, I think a, I mean, a, a female version of Max would be interesting. Okay. Um, I think a, you'd a, want, so you'd want to learn more about Phalon and, and the other drones. Right. And you want to learn more about if there's other ships that are similar or different that serve different functions. So this ship, for example, Max is an explorer, but we don't see him with any weapons on him. You right. Know, are there Phalon ships that have weapons on them? And that opens up a whole nother type of ethical set of worms. You know, are they, are they making you know, ships with weapons and well, we don't see his weapons, but we do see him transform. So it's I, you could argue that he might, if needed, he could because at no point was he threatened by anything. But if needed, if backed into a corner, he might have transformed or modulated part of him his, his himself. He recommends into a maneuvers. Yeah, whenever he's threatened, he runs away. That's because he's superior. So yes, uh, are there but that. Are there, other but that could that are, be a Star Trek kind of thing where it's like, we ha- I have guns, but I'm trained not to use them. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's the question. You know, that is, that is the, the big question. You know, with this alien technology, is it, is it also at the same time can be used as a weapon? Mm-hmm. The other question that we have to ask is, so we associate time travel and we associate robots with futurism. You know, that's mm-hmm. something that, that is also forward, forward thinking into the future. But this is an example where aliens are the robot and we just think of it differently so it's not our technology it's alien tech and i like films like that like stargate for example you know where where they have this this old technology that's been around before us that we just can't grasp i think that's phenomenal and we just takes away the fact that it just just blurs the line of what we think of robot is it's not just something from the future it's just it's just something we don't understand Mm. yeah yeah, it's something we don't understand. So, Jason, any final thoughts about Flight of the Navigator before we wrap up? Flight of the Navigator. So, the end of the so okay. So, this is my this is my thought process in my head as I'm watching this as an adult. And the big question that I have, and this is a direct parallel uh, to old movies that I've watched, is is this whole entire film a dream? From beginning, Ooh. from the point he falls into the ravine and hits his head. Is he now dreaming the entire experience? Now I've never considered that, and it's and it and I should have. <laughs> right, it, it is um, a question that that echoes 
the Wizard of Oz. The Wizard of Oz is, you know, she she hits her head, you know, when the tornado comes and falls, and and she's knocked unconscious, and unconscious, and she sees her entire family there, but they're different in some way. She goes on this wild journey, this wild trip, but when she comes back, you know, she says she says, there's no place like home, which is ultimately the same conclusion that David comes to. You know, he yeah. doesn't want to stay in this world. There's no place like home, and he risks his own entire life by going back in time to go back home. He wakes up in the exact same spot that he was left at, very similar to the way Dorothy wakes up, and his family is right there picking up as if nothing happened. The only exception to following that that possible story is that the Puck Marion is there, and he shows his brother Jeff the Puck Marion as as he gets into the boat, and he and he, whisper, he, he shushes him, shh, be quiet, you know, as if you know, uh, don't tell anyone. Although, although it could be all in his head because he's having some type of delusion from hitting his head in the ravine. But yeah, it's a new thought on the entire, on the entire, uh, the film, which I'm considering more and more. It's like, wow, this could be some type of child fantasy. So I might, I might sort of cut this into the post, post ending as like a postscript to the episode um, because it's a huge spoiler. But I do want to ask you this because it's related. Since Mm. we were talking about AI a moment ago. Yeah. The... The dream, the fact that it could be a dream. Right. So, yes. Okay. The ending of AI. There's a point where David also is also the name of the main character in that movie. David, the robot, is sitting on the edge of a building, looking out at the endless horizon, at this this right this this ocean that has risen to the to this point where it's destroyed most of New York. And he's just sort of looking out and he decides to just fall forward into the water. At that point, he gets spirited away is how I would describe it. The school of fish surrounds him and they start pecking at him and then they carry him somewhere, which is right where the blue fairy is that he prays to for 2000 years. And then of course the future robot synthetic aliens come down and they give him this whole vision with his mom and, and you know, they clone her from the hair that Teddy kept, but, but I'm, I'm sort of like fast forwarding through all of that happening. Cause I think at that point, it's all a dream evidenced by the fact that fish, a school of fish, is not going to lift a robot, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> well, yeah, unless they're robotic fish, right? So, so do you take the ending of AI to be a dream sequence? I mean, yeah. I, when I first saw the movie, um, I questioned whether a lot of it was real or mm-hmm. some type of digital construct because I didn't, I didn't understand they if they rebuilt David or if he exists on a hard drive, you know, like if this is, if this is a world, you know, that's built just for him in a computer construct or did they just right. completely rebuild David? David's now alive. So yeah, it's kind of, yeah. it's an, it's an ambiguous tone to that film. There's so many, there's so many things you can just interpret and interpret and just, you know, analyze to death. But yeah, they, it, I'm trying to remember what David, how the film ends with David. So the Teddy has been carrying around this lock of hair that David got from his mom early on in act one of the movie. And the aliens need some piece of DNA or some, some remnant of the person right, that they're going to gonna bring back. And so when he gives them the hair, they say that, that she's only going to last one day. And David makes the decision that he's going to just shut down and go to sleep at the end of that day and never right. wake up again. Yeah. So, but I would argue that he's already done that <laughs> earlier on in, in like 25 minutes prior to that. Yeah. Yeah. And that we're seeing his robot dream. It could um, be. It, yeah. We, I mean, the, the David in, in this film, 
David has a line directly. He says to his brother, have I really been gone eight years? And his brother Mm. says, yeah. He says, it's like a bad dream. So, And and the pug marin is really the only physical evidence. Right. The only physical evidence. And who knows if that was put in at the end, just to have a nice little gag at the end. The Mm. original intention was to make a, a Wizard of Oz story. You know, you instead of getting th- picked up in a tornado, you get picked up in a spaceship. You yeah. know, the parallels are are right there. There, if there was a sequel, would you want it to be ambiguous like this? Would you want them to frame it where it could be a dream as well? Oh no, absolutely, I want it to be ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but just like my science project, this film involves children getting in things that they're not supposed to, getting involved with the government. Apparently, the NASA's got some thugs. So they like push people around and hold people at their houses. And, and they uh, definitely kids are getting involved that with things they're not, they're not necessarily traditionally involved with. So I think a similar story would be good for a sequel, making sure kids are the central focus and in, in being the ones being the protagonists of humanity, the innocence of children, you know, bringing the best of everyone out. Yeah. The other thing about this film, which, which is just tragic, and it's, I didn't realize this until an adult, is that if you understand time travel, it also comes with the, the concept of multiple worlds theories. Okay. The fact that there's parallel universes that, that, that exist, and if we're actually traveling in time, we might actually just be traveling to an alternate universe. Right. So yeah. So there's, there's a universe that exists where six years later, or I'm sorry, eight years later, the Freemans are still living in that same house and that old couple doesn't live there. Right. 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 Exactly. And this is a very much back to the future timeline and discussions at time. There's different timelines where things are happening. Mm -hmm. So if we're looking at the character, Max, he's pulling people out of one universe and then putting them into another universe. And then, and then, (laughs) <laughs> for poor David's parents then, the original universe that David exists in, Max pulls him out. Now there's no David there, okay? Mm-hmm. The second universe that he drops him off in eight years later is a different universe, right? So they had no David, now they have a David. But David makes a conscious decision to then leave again. So those parents have no David. They're yeah. just feeling Ugh. tragedy and pain. The third universe has David come back to it, Right? after another David was taken out. <laughs> so they're the only universe, which is possibly not the original David, but the only universe with the David. So we have this character, Max, if you believe in uh, Rick and Morty theory, <laughs> just ruining multiple universes by yeah, pulling Max's man. out. And so, well, Max, unless, so David's very much a Morty character in the, that regard. Unless Cap comes back with all of the Infinity Stones and puts everything back in its place, right? Hey, hey, funny Captain America story. The director of this film played Captain America Steve Rogers in the short in 1964. That is amazing. Oh, that's good. That's good there's, trivia. <laughs> there's, there's video of it on, on the internet. You can look it up. It's got awesome. some really weird... It's called Captain America versus the Mutant. And uh, it's got this really, really gnarly kind of alien mutant, which looks almost like a swamp thing with big bug eyes wow. and veins. It's really, really, really cool. That but is amazing. I want to see if I get a hands on, on the six-minute short because it's Captain America live action in 1964. And yeah. the director played Steve Rogers' Captain America. I'd pay good money to see that. That, <laughs> that sounds amazing. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Well, Jason, thank you so much for coming on to Robots versus Dinosaurs today. Also, I want to thank Rochelle for coming on. Sorry, she had to leave a little bit early, but we had a really great discussion and I learned some new things about Flight of the Navigator. I hope our listeners did too. I think we had a really fun conversation about it. And as always, Jason, you are a great guest to have on the podcast. Thanks for being my first returning guest. And I never know what to say to wrap it up. <laughs> wait, wait, before we wrap, before we wrap it up, what was the, the question about? Is this a plus one or minus one for robots? Let's do that real quick. Yes, yeah. that's important. All right. So, Jason, to conclude, Flight of the Navigator, would you give this movie a plus one, a minus one, or a neutral? I think from Rochelle, I would say that we got a neutral. I was trying to, I was, I was trying to sort of coax her into a plus one. But I think if we're being fair, she gave it a neutral. So do you agree with Rochelle's assessment or would you give it a plus one or a minus one? Yeah, I, I disagree with Rochelle's assessment. It's absolutely a plus one for robots in, in terms of, of what robots can do, in terms of how robots can be humane. And it, it, it shows robots in a different light other than just being something from the future especially future future thing that can kill you like Terminator. So it, it's definitely a plus mm-hmm. one for robots. And the, the older I get, the more I feel that it's a robot movie versus an alien movie or a time travel movie. Because it, it, really, it really showcases the uniqueness of humanity, which is reflected in the robots that we built. Yeah, the uniqueness. That's a great way to phrase it. The uniqueness of humanity in the robots that we built. Yeah. Awesome. I I would also give this a plus one for robots. Since it got a plus one and a neutral from my two guests, I am going to have to really sit down and, and crunch the numbers and do the math. But Well, if um, you gave it a plus one too, then, then it's going to balance out to a plus one, right? Well, I'm not sure if I count because I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm biased, and I'm gonna, I'm probably gonna give a plus one to almost every movie. So, <laughs> did we talk about how the mom was the mom from Alien, and we need to skip over to Alien movies soon? <laughs> oh no, we didn't. I she reminded me so much of the mom from Jaws. Actually. Not the mom from but, Alien, but she's in Alien. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, she is an Alien. She reminded me so much of of the mom from Jaws for some reason. But yeah, Veronica Cartwright. She was fantastic in this. Yes. Oh. Oh. I, oh man. <laughs> I do have, actually, I do have a perfect way to wrap this up. <laughs> um, just, just wrap it up by saying, weasel, dork, butt face, scuzz bucket. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was going to say, uh, <laughs> sorry, Jason. <laughs> nice. Jason, once again, thank you for coming on to the show. My pleasure. And see you later, Navigator. <laughs> oh, compliance. Do something, big shot. You're yeah, not even exactly. trying. Yeah, exactly. You think you can do it, <laughs> then you fly it. Hey, hockey puck, it's right underneath your nose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Thanks for listening to the Apocalypse Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, go to apocalypsepodcastnetwork.com. And remember, every time you support one of our sponsors, you're supporting the podcast you just heard.